Hey, Hebrews chapter 4. We're in Hebrews 4. Let me kind of explain the book of Hebrews. I know you've uh, hopefully heard some of the messages. You have an idea of the context. Here's the idea. This book is obviously written to Jews who are now believers. So they're Hebrew believers. And it's written in a time when they are under extreme persecution. Uh, They're losing their job. They're losing their homes. They're losing their lives. Caesar Nero most likely is in power at this point, a very wicked Caesar. Christians were not, were just, they weren't just being fed to lions in the Colosseum. He found very creative ways to torture Christians. I mean, history tells us that they'd actually take animals, they would take out their insides, put Christians inside these animals, sew it up, and feed them to lions that way. Uh, Nero was an evil guy, a wicked guy. The church had to go underground. The church was being persecuted. Uh, it had some gatherings, obviously, in the book of Acts that were public and larger, and it also had some gatherings that had to be smaller and in homes or underground. And so here is the idea of Hebrews. He's writing to people who are tired, they're exhausted, they want to give up in many ways, and basically he's saying, don't give up, fix your eyes on Jesus. I know that the temple, the sacrifices, the priesthood, they're all tangible things. I know that now we're living and walking by faith. He's saying we are living under this idea of Jesus' death and resurrection, and now we're not living with necessarily physical temple, physical priesthood. We're living under kind of a different era where, uh, of grace, and he's basically saying don't give up. I know it's difficult. I know you want to go back, but fix your eyes on Jesus. And I honestly believe we are in this book for, for many reasons. I think just for this time period alone, for where we're at, we're exhausted, we're tired, we're frustrated, and the idea for us is fix our eyes on Jesus. Fix our eyes on Jesus. Um, if there's one word I think that we as a church need right now, because we're tired, man. I mean, I think this idea of being self-isolated, not being around people, n- our normal life or routines thrown off, you know, we kind of endured for a few weeks. Now maybe we're getting tired or frustrated. And here is the point. Fix your eyes on Jesus. We need to look to Jesus. We need to seek uh, first the kingdom by looking to Jesus, that he would give us endurance and strength. And so as we're going through this, um, I really do believe that we're in this book for many reasons, but I think to fit this time. So here's where we're at. Chapter four, right before Easter, we looked at this. Enter into the promise of God's rest. God wants us to rest. Enter into the promise of his rest. He says, how? Well, you gotta take God's word and mix it with faith. And then so two weeks ago, we did a study on just the power of the word of God. And then he ended that, if you remember, he says, you will, to whom you will give an account. And there's idea of enter into God's rest. The nation of Israel didn't. And if you don't enter into God's rest, you give an account, like you, you will be held accountable. And now here at the end of chapter four is this idea of, well, come boldly now to thro- the God's throne room of grace, uh, that we have a great high priest, that we don't have to be fearful or timid, that we actually have access to God the Father through Jesus. And so we have a great high priest in Jesus and that God's throne right now is a throne room of grace. And so my prayer uh, this week and for us today is that we truly be a people who approach God's throne boldly, also humbly, with confidence, and that his throne is a throne of grace and that he can sympathize, and he will meet us with mercy and grace to help in time of need, and that's probably now. Whether financially, whether that's just practically, whether that's in healing, whether that's in your relationships, and it's just whatever it is, 
We need to come boldly to the throne of grace. So we're going to read this section. It's Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. We're going to read it and then look at it more in depth. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14, it says, Seeing then, in light of entering this rest, in light of God's word being powerful, seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points as we are yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I want to read that one more time because either you're very familiar with this passage or maybe your mind started to drift and wander and you didn't really hear the power of this, of this text. Listen again. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness. It's double negative. We have a high priest who can sympathize with our weakness and was tempted, and it was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let's just pray really quick. Father, we thank you so much. We thank you so much that your throne is called a throne of grace. God, I thank you for this time we get to study your word, to not let it just be a Bible study, but God, write it on our hearts. God, I pray that this would change how we pray, how we serve, how we give, how we live. God, that we rest in the truth that you, Jesus, are our great high priest, that, God, that might not mean much to us because we didn't have the context they had, but I ask that that would mean much to us today. I ask, God, that you would bring understanding to the history of our faith, that you bring an appreciation for the priesthood, that we would have an appreciation for, God, that you are a God who sympathizes. God, thank you for being unlike any other God the world might search for a study about, that, God, you came to us, you pursued us, and you suffered with us. And we thank you that you can sympathize with us now. And Jesus, we just thank you that your throne is a throne of grace. God, how we, we, we recognize that means we don't deserve it, but we, we just enjoy it. So Jesus, we ask that you'd speak and that you'd move in your wonderful name. Amen. Have you ever had access to anyone special or important? Or have you ever had access to maybe somewhere that was very like special or important or unique. You know, for example, maybe VIP, you know someone who knows someone, you got in to meet someone famous, you got into this, this special niche kind of room and no one's there, you're backstage. I don't know if you've ever had some of privilege like that where you've kind of met someone or had an experience that no one had. There's just something about that, that excitement that comes with that, that fear, uh, that timidness that comes with that. I remember when I was like in fourth grade, my sister was in sixth or seventh grade, uh, she won a contest through Sears. I don't even know if you know what Sears is or if Sears even exists anymore. It's a place where you, guys, you could buy like everything. I don't know. You could shop anywhere uh, or shop for anything at Sears. But she filled out like 500 of these little, like, little flyers to win this contest to meet the Backstreet Boys. And this was like in the like late 90s, like the peak of the Backstreet Boys, like f- famousness. I don't know. So she filled out all these forms and she won. And she won VIP backstage access. I think she won some money or a limo ride to, to the concert. She had their, her and her friends had these VIP accesses to go backstage, take pictures of them. And I remember like my mom telling me about it because she was, you know, 12 or 13, like 
fangirling hard over them. She's freaking out. She's crying. Security's like, yo, she's losing it. But she might, supposedly she was just going off, and I was so proud that my sister met them. And we didn't have phones, so we had like actual like, photographs. I remember she brought like a photograph of her and her friends meeting the Backstreet Boys, and I took that photograph to school to be like, look who my sister met. I don't know, like for, for me, I didn't even have the experience, but I knew someone who knew someone who had the experience. And I was like showing this photograph around, like, look, she met the Backstreet Boys. But I remember it was such like this feeling of, for, and for her, and for even for me afterwards telling people, there's that feeling of excitement, maybe timidness, maybe fear. If you ever have met someone kind of like important to you, someone you respect or admire, there's a sense of like fear and awe, like I'm in their presence, what do I say? Do I be quiet? Do I shake their hand? Like how do I handle this moment? But if you've ever also watched maybe like an interview between a celebrity on camera at their home, even recently everyone's at home right now doing interviews, if you've ever seen that moment where maybe their child walks in their room and jumps in their dad's arms and their mom's arms, there's no fear. There's a side of it where, you know, for us, there's that fear and excitement. Maybe we're timid. Maybe we don't know what to say. But the child is just at ease. The child is comfortable. There's a sense of belonging. And here's the idea of this. Actually, even for me this week, I mean, the last several weeks, parents, maybe you know what I'm, you're t- I'm talking about, but you're at home studying, you're working, you're doing whatever it is you work. I'm working from home a lot, answering emails, studying for things, preparing things, you know, meeting with people, Zoom meetings, doing all these things from home. And my kids walk in 24-7. And I love the fact that they have access to data anytime. I'm starting to get a little bit resentful, but I love that fact. And uh, I think that there's that side where like they have that freedom and they have that excitement that they can walk in at any point, any time. And here's what the author of Hebrews is saying. He's saying, listen, um, God is our father and we can come boldly to his throne of grace. It doesn't need to be the sense of timidness or fear or anxiety, which it, it is also with humility, we come boldly. It's with the sense of, do we understand what we have do I truly understand and do we truly understand the, the weight of this passage that we can come boldly into God's throne room of grace, that we're actually invited into, and this is an imperative, we're commanded to come boldly to the throne of grace. And that is an cr- incredibly humbling thought that Jews who are now believers would really wrestle with this thought because who had access to the throne of God and how is that now for everyone? And yet you and I have this access to God, and I I think in some ways we might not truly understand what this means, or I don't know if we truly take advantage of what this is. So here's what I want to look at today. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14 to 16, here's what the author's showing us. Uh, We're going to see Jesus's perfect priesthood. We're going to see Jesus's perfect person, and we're going to see Jesus's perfect provision. So as we walk through these three verses, his perfect priesthood, his perfect person, and his perfect provision. Uh, Let's read this again. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. We're going to see Jesus's perfect priesthood. It says, Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. All right, let's stop there. Jesus is called the great high priest. No high priest was ever called great in the Old Testament. Jesus is the only one who's called the great high priest. Now, again, for us who didn't grow up in, you know, 55 AD and we could see the temple physically, we didn't have the Jewish upbringing and background, this might not mean a lot to us, but I want us to understand this idea of Jesus's high priesthood. This is something the author has mentioned a couple of times. I do want to look at this idea more in depth. Um, He's referring to Jesus as the high priest. 
Now, we have to understand what does that mean? What does that look like? What, what was the high priest? What was his duties? What was his role? Here's essentially how you could summarize the high priest. The high priest was to represent God before the people and the people before God. The high priest had a very unique role. There's only supposed to be one high priest. But he'd represent God to the people. He'd represent the people on behalf of God. You would see this most clearly, the most pinnacle day of this representation of him before God and, and representing God before the people was on the day of something called Yom Kippur, the day of Yom Kippur, the day of atonement. Uh, it takes place sometime around September normally, um, but the day of atonement was this day that you would see the high priest function in this way. I mean, it was an important day. It was, it's still today in Israel an incredibly important day. So obviously today, if you go to Israel, there's no temple. So now on Yom Kippur, uh, what they do is basically they shut down the nation, they fast, they pray, they'll actually think through their year and actually consider the good things they did versus the bad things they did because they can't offer sacrifice for their sins. And so they're praying and fasting, they're calling on mercy, they're praying, they're crying out to God. Um, it's interesting because they can't do what they were supposed to do that Leviticus 16 and Leviticus 23 talks about. Now, I want to point this out because if you go to Israel, um, there is no temple. And actually, it's interesting. Right now, they, you can go to something called the Temple Institute in Jerusalem. Fun fact, uh, I wasn't supposed to teach this weekend. Me and a group of 20 people from our church were supposed to be in Israel right now. And uh, we were going to go to the Temple Institute, and I'm so sad by that, but it's okay. And now we're going in October, and so if you want to go, we're going in October. Um, but here's the idea. You can go to the Temple Institute, and you can see everything that would have been in the Temple except for the Ark of the Covenant. They remade the six-feet-tall solid gold menorah, uh, it's behind bulletproof glass. They have the high priest's garments. They have brass and golden trumpets. They ha I think they're working on the veil itself. I'm pretty sure they have everything already made for the temple except for the Ark of the Covenant. And you can actually see this stuff. Now, here's why I'm bringing this up. And I, we kind of have a picture. And I want you to see what they would do in the temple period. And hopefully we have a picture and hopefully it works. It's kind of a, a confusing little picture. Anyways, um, we'll show up. It's great. There we go. Um, they, the priest would take a goat and he'd sacrifice the goat on the brazen altar. You can kind of see the bottom of your screen. And then he would take the blood of this goat and he'd walk into the holy place. The holy place had the menorah, it had the showbread, it had uh, the altar of incense, and then there was a thick veil. And behind the veil was the holy of holies. And so the priest, and here's what I want to point out, on the day of Yom Kippur, and why this is so important, please stick with me. Please follow with me. We talked a little bit about this kind of on Good Friday, but not fully. The idea is he would take two goats specifically on that day. One goat was the sacrificial goat. The other goat was called the scapegoat. You can, again, read about this in Leviticus 16 and Leviticus 23. He would take the scapegoat and the sacrificial goat. The sacrificial goat, listen, it dealt with the penalty of sin, and the scapegoat dealt with the presence of sin. Write that down. Don't forget this. Keep this in mind. This is so cool, so interesting, and this is how it worked. Sacrificial goat dealt with the penalty of sin. The scapegoat dealt with the presence of sin. So follow with me really quick. Um, the high priest, he would take the goat. It had to be spotless, without blemish. The priest, before he could even sacrifice this goat and go into the holy place and then even into the holy of holies, he'd actually have to kill a lamb for him. He'd have to make sure he was, in a sense, without sin. So he'd have to have a personal sacrifice for himself. He'd have to take a bath 
like in a mikvah, get clean, put on new garments. And then after they killed this goat, they, he would lay his hands on the goat, confess the sin, kill it, take the blood in a bowl, walk into the holy place, and walk in behind the veil. Now, according to different rabbis and writings on this, um, if the high priest wasn't holy, if the high priest wasn't um, right before God, and he went behind the veil on the day of Yom Kippur, and if he went behind the veil and he wasn't right before God, he'd actually drop down dead. And he wouldn't be allowed to atone for the people's sins in case he, just, he did it either wrongly or he wasn't living a holy life. And so actually, we're told that they used to tie a rope around his ankle and he'd walk in behind the veil and if he died, they would pull his body out. It was a very holy day. It was, a ver- it was a day that God took very serious. And so if he'd walk in behind the veil, he'd take the blood from this, this basin and he'd sprinkle it on the Ark of the Covenant. He'd sprinkle it, sprinkle it on the cherubim, on the uh, mercy seat. He'd sprinkle the blood and then he would atone for their sins. And then he would come out of the temple and to the people to say, hey, your sins have been atoned for. God accepted it. God accepted the sacrifice. How did they know their sins were atoned for? He came out and revealed himself and said, hey, it worked. Here's what we see. This first goat, the sacrificial goat, speaks obviously of Jesus. The idea of the sacrificial goat, he dealt with the penalty of sin. Jesus was that spotless lamb, that spotless goat, in a sense, who took on the sins of the world, that he too uh, had our sins placed on him. He was crucified, he was bled, he, he, he was murdered and bled, and he too now covers our sin, or actually removes our sin. And here's where it gets interesting. Remember when John the Baptist saw Jesus? He said, behold the Lamb of God who what? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He didn't say, behold the Lamb of God who covers up the sin of the world. He said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And here's what's different. These lambs and goats could only cover sin, but John said of Jesus, he took away the sins of the world. Not that he covered the sins, but he took away the sins of the world. And just like they knew their sins were atoned for by the high priest coming out of the temple, so too, how do we know our sins have been atoned for? Jesus came out of the grave. We saw him. He goes, it's finished, it's done. He came out of the grave. And so you have this idea of Jesus being the high priest, but also the sacrificial goat. Now here's the second goat. It's a scapegoat. Now maybe you've heard that phrase, the scapegoat. The scapegoat, you can read about this in Leviticus 16. It's fascinating. Uh, he dealt with the penalty of sin. And we don't put up the expiation yet. He dealt with the penalty of sin. So here's what I'm, I want to bring up with that, or the presence of sin. The scapegoat, the high priest, would literally lay his hands on the scapegoat after they killed the sacrificial goat. He would confess the sins of the nation of Israel onto this goat. A man who is worthy would take this goat and go into the wilderness, and he would release the scapegoat. And they were told not to go looking for that scapegoat, that he was released. Don't go looking for it. Don't try to find it. It is gone. And here is the idea. It's Psalm 103.12. It says, as far as, as far as the east is from the west, so far has God removed our transgressions from us. So as the goat was released and no one was to go looking for it, The Bible says, as far as the east is from the west, so far has God removed our sins from us. Here's the idea. On Yom Kippur, the high priest's job, the high priest's role, to confess the sins on the sacrificial goat, to kill that goat, to confess the sins on the scapegoat, to let that goat go. The idea was, hey, the presence of sin is removed and the penalty of sin is paid for. Sin deserves penalty. Sin deserves death. And that penalty was paid for, not on you, but on on a substitute. And that penalty was paid for. Also, your sin's been removed. So not only is my sin paid for, that the righteous wrath of God was justified because something did die, something did pay for sin, but also my sin is completely gone. And the Bible tells us not to go looking for our sin, not to go running after it, 
The point for us, I think, honestly, today as Christians is it's easy for us to kind of live in the past. Maybe we feel like we can't pray or go to God's throne of grace. Maybe we feel like we're unworthy. Maybe we feel like we don't have access because we've been living a hypocritical life. And, and here is the point of this. He's saying, no, no, no. Jesus is the high priest. Jesus is also that sacrificial goat. He's also that scapegoat. He's the one who took on the penalty of sin, and he also removed the presence of sin. And don't go looking for your sin. If God's removed your sin, don't go looking for it. If God's taken your sin out of your life, don't go looking for it. God's like, go run. It runs away. No one's to go find it. No one's to go looking for it. Just like I don't go looking for your sin. It's interesting. We're going to read in the book of Hebrews about great men and women of faith who did a lot of terrible things. But can I tell you, not one time is their sins mentioned in Hebrews 11. It's crazy. People who, whether it's Abraham, Moses, Rahab, people, men and women who had great faith, but also great sin, the Bible doesn't talk about their great sin in Hebrews 11. And I really think it's God's way of saying, hey, as far as the east is from the west, so far have I removed your sin. So here's what I want to get at. This idea of the sacrificial goat and the scapegoat. The sacrificial goat, and here's how we worded it. Um, The sacrificial goat spoke of propitiation. Propitiation means the sacrifice that satisfies. It simply means this. Um, Remember 1 John chapter 2, verse 1 and 2? John writes, My little children, I write this book to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, who is the propitiation for our sins, and not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. The idea of propitiation. Jesus is the advocate. He goes on behalf of us to God and says, Hey, Father, my sins have, my blood atoned for their sins. He's the propitiation for our sins, and not our sins only, it says, but for the sins of the world. And he's saying, listen, I was the sacrifice that met that wrath, that deserved, so our sin deserved wrath and punishment. I was the sacrifice that met that. I paid for your sin. It's done. It's removed. And not only is he the propitiation, not only is that sacrificial goat, he's also that scapegoat, which speaks of something called expiation. And follow me on this. Not only is the righteous wrath of God satisfied in the the death of Jesus and what he's done for us, but our sins have been expiated, meaning this. Expiation means sins have been canceled or removed. So I'm not just forgiven, but they're removed, man. Like the scapegoat is gone. The scapegoat speaks of expiation. It's gone. It's canceled. It's removed. Don't go looking for it. And so here's what Hebrews is saying, because we don't have the context they had. We have a great high priest, See, who passed through the heavens. Even that phrase stands out. Scholars go, why is it saying that? The priest would pass through the courtyard, would pass through the holy place, would pass through the veil into the holy of holies. Our high priest doesn't pass through some human courtyard. Our high, high, our high priest passed through the heavens to the God the Father, and it's finished, and it's done, and he, he's sitting down, it says, at the right hand of the Father, meaning it is done, it is complete. There's nothing else, that, there's no other lamb or goat that needs to come next, that Jesus didn't just cover our sins temporarily like all the bulls and goats and lambs did back then. He didn't just cover our sins. He was the lamb of God who removed our sins, who took away the sins of the world. And again, here's why I'm seeing all of this. I'm trying to give us some context to this because this doesn't mean a lot to us. We didn't, we didn't grow up with a priesthood. We didn't go with the tabernacle. We didn't grow up Jewish. We didn't have this understanding they had. And here's what he's trying to say. He's saying, do you look at verse 14 again, the very end? He says, let us hold fast our confession. In light of this, and here's the point. In light of Jesus being the great high priest, hold fast your confession. At one point you said, Jesus, I love you. I believe in you. I'll follow you. I'll give my whole life to you. And it's crazy to think, I don't know if I'd ever sit down with anyone over coffee and be like, hey, by the way, um, don't don't give up. Jesus is our high priest. Like, I don't know if I would use this tactic to encourage people. It works for them. And I think if you understand the context, it works for us. Hey, it's finished. 
He's the high priest who paid for our sins once and for all. Our sins are removed. Don't go looking for them. You don't need another temple. You don't need another priest because you have the great high priest who finished the work and it's done. Hold fast your confession. Last week was Easter. Last week we prayed a prayer of confession. Last week we said, hey, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. You will be born again. Um, at one point, whether it was last week or hopefully at some point in life, you, you made a confession and this phrase like, let us hold fast. He's saying, grip it, like hold it, don't let it go, pursue, just hold fast to the confession we made. Do not give up, do not give up. Again, this whole book of Hebrews is saying, do not give up, do see Jesus, hold fast his confession. He is our perfect priest. And number two is this, he is our perfect person. He's the perfect person. Verse 15, Again, talk about the priesthood and now his person. Verse 15 says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus is perfect person. This is a foundational truth. This is like Christianity at 101. Jesus is and was sinless. Jesus never sinned. He never sinned before creation, while he became a man and lived among us, he's never sinned past, present, future. He hasn't sinned. He won't sin. Jesus is without sin, and yet he can sympathize. Now, this is a really interesting um, dichotomy I want to talk about because it's hard for us to understand this, all right? Jesus is the high priest who can sympathize with us, but also he's not like us because he has not sinned. Now, I want to actually, and I don't want anyone to get lost here. I want to talk about this theologically for a second, and then I want to talk about this practically. All right, so don't, don't get lost in the theological part. Um, this is what you call, this is what theologians call, or in theology, you'll read this phrase called the impeccability of Christ. The impeccability of Christ. You're like, Josiah, what the heck, what is that? Here's the idea. Um, it, the impeccability of Christ was Jesus was not only sinless, he was unable to sin. He's not only sinless, he was unable to sin. Now, let's think about this for a second. People struggle with this. Everyone agrees Jesus did not sin. The question was, was Jesus able to sin? Um, some, there are some who say that he could, he had the opportunity to, or he was able to sin. Uh, that's where we would disagree, and that's where I want to kind of focus on. Can you be tempted, but still, for Jesus, could it really be real in light of that he could not sin? So let's just think through this really quick. We today, the way we talk about temptation is almost like we are will wanting to sin. When you're like, oh, I'm so tempted. When someone talks about temptation, it's almost like we use it like, I want to sin. Being tempted is not necessarily wanting to sin. Here's the idea. Being tempted is getting an alternative to God. Being tempted is someone offering you something other than God's path or God's way. So here's the idea. Again, being tempted is not a sin. Giving in to temptation is the sin. Being tempted is not a sin. Being offered an alternative, that's not the sin. Giving into temptation is a sin. I want to make that really clear. And then again, temptation is not that you necessarily want to do it as much as you've been given the opportunity to do it. So Jesus, not only was he sinless, but he could not sin. Now, that frustrates people. They're like, well, did he was that real then? Was that real temptation then? I mean, how is that real if he could not do it? And here's, again, like the smallest analogy or idea. People try to write about this. There's some great um, John Walford, William Shedd, a lot of guys who've wrote about this idea. But here, here's the idea. Um, can a rowboat attack a battleship? Absolutely it can. Um, will the battleship lose to a rowboat? Uh, of course not. Can it be attacked? Yes. Is it going to make a dent? No. 
So the idea for us is, can Jesus be tempted? Yes, he can be tempted. Does he want to give into it? Does he have the lust of that? Like, I have the lust to give into it, that temptation? No, he was given, though, the alternative to it. Let me just put up this quote here for you so you can kind of see it, how one person puts it. Here's the idea. A proper doctrine of the impeccability of Christ affirms the reality of the temptation of Christ due to the fact that he had a human nature which was temptable. Now listen, if the human nature had been unsustained as in the case of Adam by a divine nature, it is clear that the human nature of Christ might have sinned. This possibly, however, is completely removed by the presence of the divine nature. Adam was sinless, yes, but Adam didn't have this divine nature within him. Jesus is fully God, fully man. So you say, yes, he was tempted. He was tempted in all points as we are, yet without sin, he could, he could not give into it. He could not. He's divine. He's God. Again, if you struggle with this idea, though, of like, I don't get this, how could the temptation be real? Again, it's just being offered the alternative to God's way. Being tempted is not necessarily that you even want to do it. That's now lust for sin. This is just being given an option. So now I want to get kind of practical now. I think C.S. Lewis does a great job in mere Christianity answering this question. And then I want to talk to how this plays out in our lives. Here's what C.S. Lewis says. Listen to this. He says, a silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. Listen, only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. After all, you find out the strength of an army by fighting against it, not giving in. You find out the strength of a wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. That is why bad people in one sense know very little about badness. They have lived a sheltered life by always giving in. I love that. They have lived a sheltered life by always giving in. We never find out the strength of evil impulse inside us until we fight it. And Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows the top, the full of what temptation means. That is so good. You don't know the strength of an army by losing to it. You lost. You don't know the full strength of an army by losing to it. You know the full strength of an army by fighting against it and winning and go, man, they were pretty strong. See, Jesus was tempted in all points as we are, yet he never gave in. He, he knows how strong that temptation is. He, he's fasted in the wilderness for 40 days, 40 nights. Satan's saying, hey, you're God. Turn this stone into bread. Hey, do you want all the kingdoms right now in one moment of time worship me? Hey, jump off from this temple and the angels will catch you. You'll be fine. He was tired, hungry. His body was weak. He never gave in, so he knows the full strength of that. He knows the full strength of that army, of that attack. And this is the idea. Here, here's why I want to talk about this practically, okay? So please follow with me. And here's the connection. Jesus is called the great high priest. Now, when you think about what makes a good priest a good priest, or what makes, it, think about it this way, what makes a good counselor, someone who counsels you and helps you, what makes a good therapist a good therapist? Here's an idea. Um, I love how Tim Keller wrote this. He said it this way. There are two things a good priest had to have in order to be effective. Listen, the priest had to be like us and yet unlike us. So follow with me. In order to be a good priest, therapist, counselor, whatever you want to put it, in order to be someone that can help someone, you have to be like the person and unlike them at the same time. You have to be like them and unlike them. What do, you, what do I mean by that? Think about this. Um, think about the story of Hannah. If you remember in 1 Samuel, Hannah, who gave birth to Samuel the prophet, Hannah was one of two wives. The, her sister wife uh, had, had kids. She did not have kids. 
For her, this was shameful. She was broken by this. She was sad by this. She would go to the temple with her husband. She would fast. She wouldn't eat. Um, and he's like, the husband's like, why are you so sad? She's like, obviously I want kids. And she was barren. She could not have children. If you remember the story of Hannah, she actually had a really bad interaction with a priest. Eli, the priest at the time, sees Hannah and says, what's wrong with you? Are you drunk? She's crying. She's broken. And he says, you must be drunk. What's wrong with you? She goes, no. She goes, I'm just broken right now. and I, I can't have children. I want children. And he comes at her not with sympathy, but with judgment. Now, here is the idea. You, a good priest would not come at you. A good counselor, a good therapist would not come at you with judgment. They'd come at you with sympathy. They come out with you with this, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry to hear this. Let's offer sacrifice right now. Let's pray right now. A good priest would do what a priest would do, should do. She did not receive that. So here's the idea. A, a good priest has to be like us and unlike us. So when I say like us, think about it again this way, and unlike us. Imagine Hannah goes to the priest and he sympathizes with her. He goes, I'm so sorry, this is awful. And not only does he sympathize her, sympathize with her, he offers her no hope. What if he kept going with it and said, I'm so sorry going through this. Life is hopeless. God doesn't hear our prayers. I mean, you're probably just going to be barren your whole life and die. Imagine he didn't, he he sympathized so much to a fault. Imagine he sympathized so much that he never offered a counter. They never said, hey, guess what though? Guess who's the God I serve? So here's the idea I I want us to to understand fully. A good therapist, counselor, priest, pastor, there's a side of it where you want them to sympathize and relate and be like you, and yet at the same time, you want them to be unlike you. So I want someone who knows what it's like to go through something and yet has come out the other side. And here's where I want you to really hear this. Please follow me with this. When people say, how can Jesus be tempted in points as we are yet without sin? Does Jesus know what it's like to get an abortion? Does Jesus know what it's like to be divorced? Does Jesus know what it's like to be paralyzed from neck down? And they'll say, he did not experience what I experienced. How can he understand it? And I want to make this really clear. If you take that logic to its full end, no one has experienced what the other person has. I've never experienced what you have. You've never experienced what I have. Even if similar things have happened, if you take that logic to its extreme, there's so many circumstances around it. You could say we're all, at, we're all super unique. We've all had super unique circumstances. We've all had super unique moments. And here's what I'm trying to get at. Though experiences, experiences might be different externally, listen, experiences might be different externally. The core of the experiences is still the same. So here's a woman who was barren and could not have children. The idea for her was she was lonely. She felt shame. She felt abandoned by God. That's the core of that external experience. Now follow me. Did Jesus not feel lonely, abandoned by God? Did he not feel the weight of the sin of the world on him? Did he not have shame at that moment? My point is this, though the external experiences are different, listen, the core experiences are the same. Jesus goes, you give a scenario that you want to create. Does he know what it's like to be homeless? Absolutely. Does he know what it's like to be without a job? Does he know what it's like to trust in God and rely on God completely? The point is this, though Jesus might not have experienced every little micro detail that you and I have experienced for for me, Jesus at the core of them has. He knows it's like to be abandoned. He knows it's like to lose a loved one. He knows what it's like to have people turn their back on him. And the whole point is this. If you want a good priest or a good pastor or a good therapist or a good counselor in that, in that sense, you want someone who is like you and yet unlike you. And here's what I mean by unlike you. The problem with a pastor, myself, a good therapist, a good priest, they might be able to sympathize with you, but guess what? There's still sin within us. So if you've noticed or if you've had experience with this, there might be a sense where you kind of can have self-pity no one gets me, no one understands me. A pastor, a priest can listen, 
and also feel this self-pity or self-absorption. They have sin skewing their perspective of that person. Sin plays a factor in counseling. There's so many factors, but here's the thing. Jesus, not only can he relate, but he's so unlike us. He doesn't have that sin, so he doesn't have self-absorption, self-pity. He's he's the one who can give you perfect, pure counsel. He's the one who can meet you where you're at and say, I understand what you're feeling, and I've come out the other side. If you have someone who's gone through something terrible like you, but they're just as bitter and resentful and self-absorbed, you go, I don't care that you can relate to me. There seems to be no triumph in your life. The point is, Jesus, like, I can relate to you, and there's triumph in my life. I am the priest who can sympathize with you and yet without sin. And yet there's nothing skewing my perspective. There's no judgment. There's no self-absorption here. Come to me freely. And this is the beauty of the gospel is that we have a perfect person in Jesus who is the perfect priest who met our, our needs, who atoned for our sins. And he also now says, I've also known what it's like to be abandoned by God, to feel lonely, to feel shame, to feel, I know what it's like because I took the sin of the world on me. And yet guess what? I came out the other side. I triumphed over sin, hell, death. There's victory. And so we have a priest who can sympathize with us. And he's not just relatable. He's also unlike us. He's also come out the other side of it. And, and I just love that about our Jesus because it changes how I pray. It changes how I read the Bible. It changes how I help and serve others. Because I go, you know what? God can relate to me. Here, here's the thing I want you to get. The Greeks and the Romans at this time believed in something called like the apathia of God. They believed that God was apathetic. They believed that God didn't care, that God just left man to his own problems, and that God just sat up in, in heaven and just did nothing. And they had this view of God that God doesn't care. And here's what the author's offering us. He's saying, not only does God care, but God is not some king in a palace saying, oh, I feel so bad for them. He's not just a king in a palace saying, I feel bad for you. He's saying, I'm a king in a palace, but I'm going to go walk around my people and live around my people and suffer with my people. And I'm going to be rejected by my people and despised by my people and spat on by my people and beaten by my people and crucified by my people. The point is, he's not some king in a palace who goes, I feel bad for you. He can sympathize with us because he walked among us. Because he experienced the pains and reality of this world and what sin does to people, he experienced that, and yet he was without sin. He is that perfect high priest who not only can relate, but he's also unlike us. And I'm so thankful. I'm, I'm so thankful he's both. I'm so thankful he can sympathize, and yet he's perfect throughout it. And so lastly, here's what we're going to see. Now with that knowledge, there's this invitation, so come boldly. This is the imperative now. This is like the the one command in this section we're reading. Verse 16, we're going to see Jesus' perfect provision. It says, Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. In light of this knowledge that he is the perfect person who is sinless, the perfect high priest who meets our needs, who who atone for our sins, he goes, you with that knowledge now come boldly to God's throne room of grace. Now let me just say this. God has a throne. He is God. I don't sit on a throne. Like we might joke like, oh, that's my throne at home. Like, no, I don't have a throne. You don't have a throne. We don't have a throne. We don't rule and reign. God has a throne. God is still God. God still has all the power and all the authority of the world. And he chooses to describe his throne as a throne of grace. That is mind-blowing to me. When you think about even the Jewish perspective of this time, they, at Jews without Jesus, that didn't know Jesus, would not have imagined God's throne being a throne of grace. Actually, rabbis taught that time that God had two thrones. They said God's throne of judgment and God's throne of mercy. Rabbis taught that God sat, he would literally sit up on the throne of judgment and get up and sit on the throne of mercy. Here it says he's a throne of grace. I love that. It's a throne of grace, and you might receive mercy and grace in time of need. 
You see, here's what I want us to get. They, one person, one day a year, could go into the presence of God behind the veil, into the Holy of Holies. And he could not come in boldly. He would come in with a rope around, with blood in his hand, going, God, I hope you accept this. I hope you receive me. He would come to God's throne, God's presence, with fear, with anxiety, with a sense of timidness. And now the author is saying, but we had a high priest who did all of that, so God's presence is a throne of grace now. We don't come in that way anymore. There's a verse in Hebrews 10. I'm gonna read it. It's Hebrews 10, 19. If you wanna turn over two pages, you can. But listen to this. Hebrews 10, 19. Please follow with me on this. He says, therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest, the holy of holies, by the blood of Jesus. What do they carry? The blood of a goat. Having the boldness to enter the holiest, the holy of holiest, by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living uh, way, which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh. There's so much said here. Please catch this. You now have access to the holiest. Come boldly again, that phrase. Come boldly again to what? The holiest, to God's presence. How? We have access through the blood, not of a goat, but of Jesus, through the blood of Jesus. And that there's this way through. What is the way in? He says, through the veil, just like they had to pass through the veil into the Holy of Holies, we still too pass through the veil that is his flesh. Just like the veil in Matthew 27, 51, it says, was torn apart from top to bottom. That is an unbelievable statement in verse, that God's veil was literally ripped apart, top to bottom, not bottom to top, it says, top to bottom. As if God, when Jesus died on the cross, in Matthew 27, as if God ripped the veil and says, come on in, you have access to the holiest, to the holy of holies. Here the author of Hebrews is taking that truth that happened on the cross and saying, the veil, guess what the veil speaks of in the temple? Jesus' flesh. Just like the temple was torn and rent, Jesus' flesh was rent, was torn. We have access to the holiest because why? The veil was torn in Matthew 27, but in reality, that veil really spoke of his flesh. Just like Jesus' flesh was torn apart and pierced and bruised and whipped, we now have access to God because the veil has ripped apart. The veil that is his flesh. The author says this. This is the author's commentary on the veil. Whenever you look at Exodus or Leviticus, let me just say this, by the way, it can be overwhelming. Like, oh, why is there so many details? Why does the priest wear this garment? Why is there so many different lambs and goats and peace offerings and burnt offerings? And why is there the veil with such detail? Why is the veil so thick? What the heck? Why are there so many details? And here's what the book of Hebrews is saying. It speaks of Jesus. It speaks of Jesus. It speaks of Jesus. It, Jesus is better. The veil that was torn apart, Jesus. The high priest that we long for and miss, Jesus. Oh, the, the scapegoat, Jesus. Everything, Jesus. The book, of, the book of Hebrews is basically saying everything you had in Exodus and Leviticus, guess what? That was a shadow of the substances of Christ. You know, what you think, what you see with your eyes looks visible and concrete, but that is the shadow. The true substances of Jesus. Jesus is that. So the throne now, guess what? His veil was torn. His veil was rent. You know what that means? God's throne is the throne of grace. This changes everything. Again, if you're a Jewish mindset, please follow me on this. And you know only one man one day a year can enter into God's presence. And now he says, hey, it's rent. Come boldly. It's not one man, not one day a year, not the holiest man. Men and women alike. By the way, I think, I don't know if we have it, but there's a picture of the temple where they had the court of Gentiles, the court of women, Jewish women, the court of Jewish men, the court of priests. I mean, they had all these different courts, all these different layers or levels to be near God's holiness. And do you understand what he's saying? He goes, there's no courts. He goes, there's no courtyard. 
There's no court of Gentiles and court of Israelites and court of women and court of priests. There's no layers, there's no levels. Come boldly. Like there's not separation. Those walls have been torn down. Come boldly to his throne room of grace. Listen to this, Leviticus 16.2. The Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, your brother, not to come at just any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat, which is on the ark, lest he die. For I will appear in the cloud above the mercy seat. God's like, yo, Moses, you know, Aaron, your brother, the high priest, um, he can't just come anytime he wants. He can't just come into the presence of the holiest place behind the veil. He will die. And now the author of Hebrews is saying, come boldly. I don't know if I fully understand what we have in Christ. I don't know if I fully appreciate this access we have where you can come into that presence, that glory, that glory of God. And it's hard to even express this. There's those times you might have in prayer or fasting or where you're seeking the Lord and you're just flooded with the goodness of God, the love of God, the grace of God, the weight of God, and you're broken, you're in tears, and you're like, I don't even know why I'm crying, I don't even know why I feel this weight, I don't even know why I feel this at this moment, because God's like, my Shekinah glory dwelt above the mercy seat and dwelt in temples at one point, but my glory, my spirit now dwells in, not with temples made with hands, but with your body. First Corinthians 6 says that our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. That God at one point in time, his spirit and his presence dwelt in temples, but no longer does he dwell in temples, but he dwells in our bodies. And there's something that now the author of Hebrews is pointing out. What we have in Christ is far better than what they had. They had a temple, they had this cool priesthood, they had these beautiful, the gold menorahs, they had a, it was just beautiful and expensive, but what we have in Christ, though it's not seen with the eye, it's far better. The God, God's spirit does not dwell in temples made with hands, but God's spirit dwells in us. And that's why there's this invitation of come boldly to the throne of grace. I mean, that's why this invitation is, is incredible. So let me just say this, right? Let me just say this and be really clear. Right now, God's throne is a throne of grace, but it won't always be. When you read Revelation 20, when you read about the great white throne judgment, um, that is not a throne of grace. That is a throne of judgment. And there's a side of it where I'm just saying, you can experience the throne of grace right now. Come to Jesus. See Jesus. Offer your life. Go to Jesus. Come boldly to the throne of grace. Come, come. There's that invitation of come boldly to the throne of grace. The Bible's constantly offering these invitations. And we go, that's cool. That's awesome. Come boldly to the throne of grace. But how many of you right now, as soon as we pray and close, are going to come boldly to the throne of grace? How many of you tomorrow morning, Tuesday morning, Wednesday morning, are going to come boldly to the throne of grace? We've been given something that they did not have. And I, I feel like it's this valuable, priceless thing that we're giving to children. Like, cool, and they play with it and they toss it to the side because they don't know what they have. We have something that is just incredibly priceless that we cannot just toss to the side. Come boldly to God's throne of grace. Spend time with Jesus, man. Be alone. Be quiet. Be silent. Praise him. Thank him. Say, God, reveal sin in my life. Break me right now, God. What, are, what, are, what am I not seeing in me? Where's the pride? God, God's grace, can I tell you something? It, it just, it humbles you. God offers mercy and grace, not so that we can continue to sin, but it's to really humble us and transform us. And this is what God's great. When you truly experience the grace of God, you're not like, how can I sin more? God understands. God will, you know, God's, gr God's so gracious. I'll just do what, I know his word says this, but I'll do the opposite. That's not what grace does to you. Grace truly humbles you. Grace truly breaks you. And it says mercy and grace will come in, in time of need. By the way, um, this is like a conditional thing. It's saying, come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy. He's basically saying, if you come to the throne of grace, you will find it. Not, the word may is will. Like you will find mercy and grace. So the idea is if you don't come to the throne of grace, you won't find it. You won't find something there because you're not going there. So you've got to go there to find mercy and grace. You've got to go to God to get this. If you want mercy and grace, come boldly to the throne of grace. It's offered. It's there. Not that you may. It's not even that you may. You might. It's not what the word may means. It means you will. That you will find mercy and grace.
Not that you might, but you will. But you gotta come. You gotta come. You want grace and mercy? I do. I, I know we all do. But you got to come to God's throne. You got to come. And so again, um, whoever's watching, whoever this is for, I don't think this is just for non-believers, by the way. This is speaking to believers, saying, come boldly to God's throne of grace. Whether or not you've ever experienced and tasted and see that Jesus is good, or whether you've been walking with Jesus for a long time, the invitation is there, come boldly to his throne of grace. And there's something incredibly powerful that happens. You actually find mercy and grace. Surely mercy and goodness will follow me all the days of my life, and that's what you find when you come to his throne. Listen, I'm going to pray really quick, and then obviously we're going to share a couple announcements, and then we're going to have our Zoom questions up, so don't leave yet, but let me just pray for you guys. Father, um, I just ask that this would not be words that are spoken that I don't believe or carry out, or that we don't believe and carry out, but Jesus, truly, we want to take you up on this offer. Father, right now, we want to come boldly into your throne room of grace and just say, Father, thank you. That's a throne room of grace. Thank you for Jesus, who's our high priest, that he paid for our sin, that he represents you to us and us to you. And we just thank you, God, that he just took on the sin of the world, that, God, we don't have to come with fear and timidness, but there's a sense of that childlike belonging that, that as our kids walk into our room at any time, Lord, we just want to walk into your presence and say, Jesus, you're so good. We need mercy right now. We need grace. God, I pray for the families right now, the individuals that are listening that need financial provision that you would provide, that need health for their family, safety, Jesus, just for our anxiety, for our mindsets, God, that they would find mercy and grace at your throne, that you would heal mindsets, Jesus, that, God, we would be bold as lions, as followers of you, that we would not be fearful. God, let us be wise as serpents and gentle as doves. God, that is our prayer, that we would just be wise and gentle that Jesus, we wouldn't have fear, that we would honor people and honor their needs right now, but also, Lord, just walk with confidence. And so, Jesus, we thank you for your throne of grace. Let it change how we pray, God, I ask for our church. Let it change the exchange. Let it change how we pray, how we approach you, how we seek you, how we, how we, God, how we love on others, that we too would be gracious. God, help me as a dad to be gracious, a husband. Let this just change every part of our lives, that we would create, like you, just these areas of grace these spaces of grace, God, where you just move and work. Thank you that your throne is a throne of grace. We just ask that people who don't know you would believe in you, accept you, that they come now before it's a throne of judgment, that they come now before it's the great white throne. So Jesus, we just come to you and we just beg for mercy, we beg for grace, um, just as that humble servant who beat his chest saying, God, be merciful to me. That is our prayer, that is a request, that you just show us grace. We come and ask and we seek it and we believe that you will give it, Jesus. We thank you. There's no one like you. And we just praise you now in your name. Amen. Listen, a couple announcements, and then we're going to put the questions up. Again, right now, there's some Zoom groups happening. I think one at 12 or 1 and one at 4 p.m. There's some Zoom groups happening today, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Please, 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 you might not know anyone in that Zoom group. It doesn't matter. Just sign up. Just go online, click on it, find the right time for you, and they'll be emailed, and they'll reach out to you. But please be a part of, of a group that way. Um, hey, join us for prayer on Wednesdays at 12.15 on Facebook Live. Just want to make sure you're aware of that. We can't pray uh, you know, together with like a big room of people, but we still can pray in a public way. So this is how we're going to do that. Um, also, if you want to just be encouraged on Monday, Wednesday, Friday, we release like a new daily podcast. We just want that to be a blessing and an encouragement to you guys. And then also just join us Friday night as we're going to just talk about relationships and text in your questions. And we'll show you how you can text in your questions um, through social media. So stay connected that way. Listen, we're going to put the questions up for you guys. Um, 
uh, base off this conversation. If you want to talk about it with your husband, your wife, if you just want to talk about it with uh, a Zoom group later in a couple hours. So we're going to put the questions up. You can take a picture of those questions, but that will be rotating through in the next few moments. And uh, yeah, when you're ready, take, take some pictures of those. That's it. Love you guys. See you through the podcast or Zoom, hopefully. All right. God bless you guys. See you.